0: Good morning, y'all. Good morning. Hey, Second Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 is where we're going to be. If you have a Bible there with you and you want to turn or tap your way there, uh, we'll be getting there in just a minute. Well, this uh, past Tuesday evening, uh, Vin Scully, the voice of the Dodgers, passed away at 94. And regardless of whether or not you are a quote-unquote sports person, you likely uh, know his name or at least saw his name uh, in and around the socials over the past week. Uh, Vin Scully served as a broadcaster for the Dodgers for 67 seasons. He has been hailed by just about everyone who has any opinion worth having as the greatest baseball broadcaster of all time. And even as far back as the uh, late 80s, uh, LA Times saw him as the most important Dodger ever. Someone not even playing the game it was so vital to everything that we know about the Dodgers. He had this incredible gift at the English language, able to turn moments of the game into miracles. If you do not believe me, just go to your YouTube today and search Kirk Gibson 1988 home run, and you can close your eyes. It is a masterpiece at using the English language, waiting for about 70 seconds of just letting the, sila- the, the, the eruption of the stadium be the soundtrack. And so having him pass this past week, it was interesting to read over memorial after memorial of Vin Scully's life. The primary thing that he was remembered for was not his craft at his work, but his enduring presence, his constancy. Eric Neal for ESPN wrote, In the end, Scully's longevity may best define him not because he was an institution, which he was, not because he could draw on a seemingly endless reserve of memories every time he took the air, which he could, and not because it's remarkable to do any one thing for so long, even as half as well as he did it, which he most certainly did, but because his listeners could mark the passage of time in their own lives against the background of his steady, familiar presence." Scully was the soundtrack when you were a boy and when you were a grown man too. You inherited Scully. You shared him with friends like some kind of sacred sacred shibboleth. You possessed him, or excuse me, you passed him on to your sons and daughters. You came to feel as though you knew him because he was always there. Scott Miller for the LA Times this week. In a town synonymous with fleeting fame, Scully was the one thing that always seemed to endure. His longevity His constancy, his endurance got him labeled by the LA Times 25 years ago, the most trusted man in all of Los Angeles. Over almost seven decades, countless other job offers to go and do bigger and greater things. He stayed with the Dodgers, personally living through tragedies that would crush or embitter others, losing both a wife and a son. And yet through it all, he endured constancy, that faithfulness to it all. And he would argue that it was his faith in Jesus that served as an anchor through it all. And in the likelihood, the very high likelihood, that there will be baseball in the new creation, it's not hard to imagine what Vin's going to be up to. Now, I bring up Vin Scully today because his legacy serves as such a wonderful example and portrait of exactly what the Apostle Paul has been up to in his second letter to Timothy. Paul has been a sort of Vinscoli pastor, not just to Timothy, but so many fledgling new church plants here in this new movement called the people of Jesus. And reading 2 Timothy, we are reading his final broadcast, his final letter before his martyrdom under the Roman Empire. And in it, he calls Timothy, he's helping him, and and through the Spirit, in his words, us, to endure in the faith, how how to be this kind of a person, Not just in your career, but to be the sort of person to have this enduring constancy in your following of Jesus and for us to have that kind of enduring presence within ourselves as a community, as a collective people, if we endure in the faith. And so over the past few weeks, in the back third of the letter, we've been looking at these really practical ways of endurance that Paul has been giving to Timothy. We looked at the necessity of remembering the saints, bringing to mind those faithful ones who have gone before, of receiving the scriptures as the story that we live in. Last week, with a little bit of a COVID switcheroo, Pastor Isaac jumped to the fourth way of endurance and reverse engineering your life, living your life backwards from the legacy that you want to leave, the endurance that you want to have at the end of your life. How do you live in the way that's gonna get you there today? You see, all of these require a deep intentionality because as Paul has shown time and time again, to faithfully endure a lifelong legacy of discipleship to Jesus does not come easily or naturally. But distractions, difficulties, complacency, mediocrity are the occupational hazards of apprenticeship to Jesus. It's so prone for us to give up or give in. And so today, what Paul's gonna be doing with us as we circle back to the third way of endurance. And what will be my final teaching in this series before, as you heard a moment ago, Dr. Gary Bashir will be with us next week to close it out, is that third way of endurance. How do we become a Vinscoly kind of Christian? How do we become an enduring presence as a church community? And so with that being said, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word as we read from 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse one today. 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul writes to Timothy. and will wander away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. And so Father, we pray that you would gather us up as your people underneath your word and that as I speak today, that you would continue to shape us into the community of Jesus's people. God, that we would be a people who look with a longing towards Jesus and his kingdom. God, his appearing, that is his, his coming return. And that we would be gathered as the people who, uh, under the verdict of the coming judge, has already named us as the forgiven and beloved people of Jesus. So we pray that that identity would move us into what it means to be the sort of people you've, you've called and crafted us to be today. God, help us to pay attention to the itching of our ears so that we may endure in the faith. Be with us, we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. Well, if there is anything true about me, one of the things that are fairly true is that you can chart my life in my Google search history. Um, And based off the ads that I see on a regular basis, the algorithms are well aware of my repeated search, how to get kids to eat vegetables. (laughs) It is a tale as old as time. Step one, mom or dad labor in the kitchen to prepare a healthy meal. Step two, kids don't want healthy. Step three, World War III. Like the war of like the broccoli projectiles erupt as the kids pick around the vegetables or they toss it under the table to the dog. And the frustration boils over with us because all we want is for you to receive this healthy food. And apparently that's the one thing you don't want. Central to the passage today, and right in the middle of what we just read, Paul reflects on a similar propensity within the church of Jesus. In verse three, he says, people will not endure, that is, they won't accept or put up with sound, or you may have a footnote that shows, or can be translated, healthy teaching. People will not endure healthy teaching. This sort of healthy teaching, what is he talking about here? In verse four, he makes it clear that what he's talking about is the truth. Healthy teaching is the truth. They're synonymous with one another. In Paul's previous letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, he begins in there to kind of detail what he's now picking up on, where he describes healthy, sound teaching as that which conforms with the scriptures, is carried by the church, it promotes godliness within its hearers, and it glorifies God in the result. This is healthy teaching. This is doctrine is the fancy word, or to get even fancier, this is orthodoxy, right belief. Right belief that leads to right worship that results in a rightly put life. This is what Paul says people have an itching ear to want to turn away from. You see, the obstacle to endurance that Paul calls our attention to today is your and I's, our propensity to pick around and toss under the table our spiritual veggies, to take the teaching that is healthy and makes us healthy and to pick around it and set it to the side. Where does this come from? Why do we do this? Paul continues in verse 3, the reason we do this is having itching ears, they will accumulate teachers to suit their passions, or as the word can be translated from the Greek, their cravings that they have itching ears, they will accumulate teachers to suit their, we might put it, spiritual sweet tooth. And this spiritual sweet tooth leads them to accumulate or heap up what he calls junk food teachers, preachers, and thinkers, those that will feed them exactly what they want to hear according to their itching ears. As the Christian Standard Bible translation puts it, they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. spiritual sweet tooth that uh, St. Benedict, the Italian monk, uh, so beautifully describes in the opening chapter of his rule of St. Benedict, where he describes these sorts of people as those who see their own desires and pleasures as the law of God. They call their every whim holy, and whatever they don't want to do, they name as unlawful. The Greek word of what he's getting at here is heresis. It is to choose for oneself, to an itching ear, to choose the thinkers and the teaching that, that sets within what I want to hear. Heresis being the root word for the English word heresy. Or what the Old Testament prophets simply just called idolatry. As the African... St. Augustine put it, if you believe what you like and reject what you don't in the gospel, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. This is what Paul sees as, the primary, as, as one of the obstacles to endurance, is this spiritual sweet tooth, this itching ear that results in verse four, us turning away from the truth, once again, that is healthy teaching, and wandering into myths, fantasies, delusions, false realities that results in false broken ways of living, as he talked about back in chapter three. And so in his final broadcast, Paul here warns us of this other obstacle to an enduring faith, that Vince kind of life, that legacy of an enduring faithfulness to Jesus. He warns us that the obstacle to an enduring faith is not enduring sound teaching, but wandering after our cravings. And so before moving forward to the way of endurance, to make this passage our own, to make it your own, What does your spiritual sweet tooth crave? Who are your junk food teachers, preachers, and thinkers? Maybe like me, you've found that the predominant spiritual sweet tooth in your life is for some sort of a Christianity that lets you off the hook in a particular call of discipleship. I want a Jesus, I want a Christianity and a faith that speaks to just about everything except for that one part of my life. This is the same dynamic that we saw throughout history in the American slave owners who had a sweet tooth for slavery. And so they went after teachers that would give them just enough Jesus, but we would leave aside the structures and systems of slavery, the spiritual sweet tooth for their systems of injustice. Or Thomas Jefferson's itching ear for a more naturalist story of Jesus, literally going through his Bible with a razor and cutting out the miracles, the resurrection, anything that came across as overly miraculous and spiritual. You see, we all have a spiritual sweet tooth. What is it for you? Maybe for some of us in the room, it's a, it's a desire for control. Rather than trust, we want control. And so we chase after and look for those false teachers, whether that's the end times alarmists that give us some kind of system and framework for our lives or the conspiracy theories that we aren't, don't have to be afraid at what's going on in the world. There's some big mega plot going on that at least now I know I'm in the know and it's not so scary. Or maybe it's just the simple kind of theological jargonism silliness of like numerology and all these numbers that I see throughout the day having some special significance where rather than being a person of trust and wisdom, I can just look for numbers as they randomly appear throughout my week. For some of you, maybe your spiritual sweet tooth is for comfort. A Christianity that doesn't call you to die to yourself, but to sit comfortably in the rhythms and relationships and modes of your being. And so you will take that prosperity junk food teacher who, with his wonderful smile and nice shoes, will tell you sitting on your couch, you're doing just fine where you are. Just go ahead and keep relaxing and keep sending me money while you're there. Maybe for some of you, your spiritual sweet tooth is for the approval of others rather than the approval of God. And so what you look for is some kind of Christianity where how can I get just enough Jesus into my life, leaving behind anything that anybody that I work with or my neighbors would see as outright being troublesome or difficult. This past week, I reread 1 Timothy just to get some of the more context of this letter. And it was so profound. At one point, Paul identifies what is contrary to healthy and sound teaching. And the two primary examples he gives are sexual immorality and injustice. That's just worth a, you know, as one of my professors said, a cup of tea and a long walk. What kind of teaching are your itching ears prone to accumulate? What's your spiritual sweet tooth? You see, as with any diet, part of moving towards health is being honest about our cravings. If I want to be healthy, here's what Ryan's learned. I can't have candy in the house. I can't have ice cream in the freezer if I'm wanting to get healthy. I can't just accumulate food. I have to curate it. I have to give an attention to who's the kind of person that I want to become and how do I have the sorts of food in my house that move me in that direction. And in the same way, that's what Paul is getting at today. Do you want to endure? What kind of a person do you want to be? You can't just accumulate random teaching from all over and think you're going to end there. You need to curate that. Which leads us to today's third way of endurance. The third way of endurance, if you're taking notes, is to just reverse his warning in in verse two. If people's propensity is to not endure sound teaching, then the way of endurance is to endure sound teaching, to hold on to that which is healthy, to not lose or toss aside, but to keep the alliteration going, to retain sound teaching, like a sponge soaking up water, not to lose it, but to retain, to hold what's been entrusted and given to you. And so looking back at the passage, you'll see verse 3 and 4 is the warning of not enduring sound teaching. I would argue verses 2 and 5, sandwiching it, are Paul's practical way of how the church can retain that sound teaching, how the church can overcome our spiritual sweet tooths. And what's uh, maybe lets you guys off the hook a little bit, but puts a heavy weight on me is, and, and the other pastors of Collective, is Paul places chief responsibility for a community retaining sound teaching on the pastors. That Pastor Timothy here in Ephesus is meant to serve as the family dietitian and an and in-house chef of healthy and sound teaching, presenting before the people what they can receive. And so what does Paul say? What does healthy teaching look like in the life of the church? Verse two, Paul says, preach the word. Healthy teaching, first and foremost, is pastors getting up on a regular basis and feeding people the Bible. This is the fancy word for it is expository preaching, where the point of my sermon arises as the point of the text. I'm not using, as one of my professors put it, I'm not using the scriptures as a as a diving board to swim around in what I want to talk about, but the scriptures are the pool that we're swimming through and looking at. It's expository preaching where the point of the teaching is the point of the scriptures. Preaching the word is what we're all about. Now, some of you may have the question, why the Bible? Stay tuned. In two weeks, we're starting our next series, uh, how to read the Bible, where we're gonna get into all of this. So Paul says healthy teaching is based in the scriptures. It is a preaching of the word, which in verse five, I would argue, he's kind of um, sandwiching the sandwich, is to preach the word is to do the work of an evangelist. An evangelist, before it was you know, someone that goes door to door and like, hey, can I tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? In the time of Paul, an evangelist was a job title. The evangelist was the one who went and heralded the good, the news of something that's going on in the world. Whether that's, you know, Caesar has conquered another town. The evangelist would come to town and he would be the town crier calling out and heralding the news. Paul says to preach the word, healthy teaching is to be a Vinscoli of the gospel. Broadcasting to the people week in and week out who Jesus is, what he's done and what he's doing and will do to weekly come up and talk about Jesus as the saving king, showing him as the one who preexisted with God the Father, and how in accordance with the scriptures, that Jesus came, became human in the line of David, died for our sins, was resurrected on the third day, seen by more than 500 witnesses, was installed as king at God's right hand, has now sent the Holy Spirit who is at work within his people and will be until the future return when he reunites heaven and earth. Paul says, preaching the word results in an evangelism, a proclamation of the gospel. If you're going to preach the Bible well, you gotta preach what it's all about, and that's Jesus. Sundar Krishnan, the Indian Canadian pastor, puts it so wonderfully. He says, preaching is building a highway of the word into the wilderness of people's lives along which the king of glory will travel. So, healthy teaching for the life of the church is first and foremost a proclamation of the scriptures that results in people seeing Jesus for all he is. But what does healthy teaching do? In verse two, Paul gives us the three parts of a balanced breakfast in preaching. He says, healthy preaching reproves, that is, it convicts the heart. It rebukes, that is, it calls for people to stop and cease sinning and it exhorts, it encourages them in obedience. Now, just a couple of things here. There's so, I, we could just talk about these three things all day, but just a couple of things to note. First is that healthy teaching is aimed and focused not on getting information into your heads. But it's, it, what is it doing? It's convicting your heart. It's challenging the way that you're current living and encouraging you into a new way of living. So it's not about information. It's about formation. And neither is it just about conversion of preaching the word so people get baptized. Yes, and amen, but it's about formation of people becoming more like Jesus. The passage that I hold, it's on my desktop every single day that I take as my calling as your teaching pastor comes from Colossians chapter one, verses 24 through 29. But right in verse 28 is exactly what Paul's reminding us here. He says, we preach Christ warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may, what, present everyone mature in Christ. Healthy teaching is about your maturity. It's not about you thinking more theologically, though that plays into our maturity, to be sure. It's about shaping you into maturity in the way of Jesus. But notice also the balance of healthy teaching. It also, uh, is, as it encourages, it also challenges and corrects. Healthy teaching is neither angry condemnation but nor is it cheap grace believing that we can massage people into the kingdom of God. Like, it's going to be, you come on in, it's great. Healthy teaching both encourages and it calls out and challenges. Now, for some of us here, maybe you do, you find that a little bit off-putting, that, that okay, maybe it's the word or, you know, maybe it's Ryan, but some, that, that there would be any kind of structure like that where I would be called out and corrected and challenged. If you find that off-putting, I would just ask you to contemplate and consider what separates this preaching that you shirk from the coaching that you receive. A few years ago, I was at a friend of mine's wedding and I was sitting across from another friend of mine's sister who I'd bumped into her and, and had you know, gotten to know her a little bit over the years, but we never really had a chance to really catch up. And she lived out of town and so she was back in and we're catching up about her kind of whole story of you know, walking away from the Christian faith and deconstructing. And the chief issues for her were around the church. Specifically the structure and the necessity of this like, you know, once a week Sunday gathering thing. And then also the kind of authority of preaching on her. Like, why can't I just, why, why does that have to be on a Sunday in a gathered room with everyone? And why does that have to be someone else telling me what to do? Why can't I just go to Lake Tahoe and like experience God there? Why is that not enough? And it was so profound to me because in less than 30 minutes, the conversation shifted and she began to praise how much she was loving yoga in her life. But not just yoga, but specifically a particular class and teacher that she had. And she talked about the necessity of having a set time weekly where she had to be there and prioritize gathering together. And what she found is so necessary and helpful was an instructor who would challenge and correct her posture and and guide her through how to do it well. And she was just all, it was all I need, I can't, And I was just, what's the difference here? I would argue many of us gladly receive a challenge so long as it's a challenge in the direction that we want. And the issue is that most of us just don't want godliness. Most of us just don't think Jesus is king. And so Paul says healthy teaching will instruct, it will rebuke, it will reprove, but it will encourage it will put a hand on the shoulder where you may feel your heart convicted. You may feel parts of your life challenged and yet you leave every single week feeling as though Jesus through the preached word is putting his hand on your shoulder saying, you got this. Paul moves then in verse four, uh, chapter four in verse two and five to then detail what kind of a preacher does healthy preaching come from? Because just as important as what they say is who they are. And so Paul gives some little adjectives, some descriptors of what a healthy preacher is like. He says, first and foremost, that they are ready in season and out of season. They're not waiting for the scriptures to be in fashion or to be the craving of the day. They faithfully labor and are ready, presenting Jesus through the scriptures to the people. They do their work with not just patience, complete patience. They are never irritated. They never despair. They never see anyone beyond salvation or formation. They take what is called the long view of preaching, believing that there's far more that can be done in the week in and week out labor of their work than what they might be prone to assume. It's thinking like a baseball player. We're doing a lot of baseball today. We're Vince Scully now making another sports reference. For those of you that are new, when I make sports references, it's, it's a thing. Like I'm a weird, I read, I read Star Wars books for fun. Like I know about the difference between a Trandoshan and a, what's another race? A Thorian. Because um, I'm that big of a nerd. So when you get a sports reference from me, it's a thing. Um, preaching, complete patience. This is important for you, I promise, because I want to shape your framework for how sermons work and the preaching of the word is to think like baseball. If you get up, to the plate. I had to think for a second. Get up to the plate (laughs) and, and you swing every single time you get up to the plate for a home run. Do you know what happens? You get lucky every now and then, but statistics show the guys that get up there and swing as hard as they can for a home run every single time, they might have more home runs, but they also have more strikeouts than anyone else. So the problem is, is when we expect preaching to work that way, we're we're, we're, we're going for the wrong R- RBI. Is that the right thing? Right? Come on now, help me guys. Everybody's like, amen in the back. Um, as opposed to what wins games is team, the whole team working together and, and batter after batter, everybody focused on just getting on base. And what does that do? Slowly you build up those bases and every now and then you get lucky and you get a home run, you get a double, you get a triple. But the main focus is, man, let's just get on base. Healthy preaching with complete patience, both in the preacher and in the congregation, says today's today's goal is to get on base, get, get to Jesus for one more week. And hey, every now and then, Ryan or Lorenzo or Isaac may get up and it's a double, it's a triple. Oh my goodness, it's a home run. That's awesome, but that's the Spirit showing up in a really cool way. But our responsibility is getting on base, not striking out. And so complete patience becomes the posture. We're not here to swing for... Immediate change, but to know that it it takes time. The spirit works, as Paul says, from one degree of glory to the next. Next, he says that preachers are to be sober-minded. That is, they are a non-anxious presence in the life of the church. They are not controlled neither by substances nor by society. That the preacher, yes, speaks to the issues of the day, but the preacher's job is not to be a pundit not torn to and fro to whatever the nightly news and the weekly news is. Yes, speaking to what we're experiencing, but there is a greater truth than we're bringing than just repeating the news with a Christian slant. Next, the preacher is to endure suffering. They are to remain faithful amid pushback from both the outside and within. Then amid defiance and apathy in the church, they continue to labor with that patience and endurance. I love Paul's dynamic here that the two times that he uses the word endure in the passage is that the, pa- the preacher endures suffering so the church can endure healthy teaching. And then finally, that Timothy is to fulfill his ministry. That as the pastor, he is here to In 1 Timothy, he calls his ministry to correct false teaching. And as we saw at the beginning of this letter, to raise up others who are able to teach and preach and evangelize also. So the whole point of preaching is is formation, but formation so that you yourself can open the scriptures and teach them as well. More on that in the next series. But let's move into practical now. Let's get into practice. What do we do with this? Because you're not planning on preaching next week. What does this mean? I think the first thing to note is for Paul and the Spirit speaking through him, that central to a church enduring sound teaching is the church enduring the preaching of the gospel as revealed in the scriptures. Though it is of vital importance that yes, you preach the gospel to yourself and we as a community preach and encourage one another, Paul's focus here in writing to Pastor Timothy is a focus on the necessity of the preaching in the gathered church on a weekly basis. Now for some of you, you're like, man, that sounds awesome. Ryan's got job security. That's not the case. Reading over this is nothing but a sobering charge. As the reformers said 500 years ago, the pulpit that is the, for us, the coffee table is the rudder of the church. The pulpit is the rudder of the church, like on a boat. And so what that means is the church has a deep need for a faithful rudder. And as goes the leaders, so goes the church community. And the preaching is one of those primary places that that happens. And so far more than job security, this is like, you know, didn't sleep well this week thinking over the reality of this. Paul wants every local church, every church's the members to have in their community these kinds of Scully, Vin Scully embodiments of enduring presence in their church, that their presence and their preaching is so constant that it becomes a framework for them even counting the old days of their lives and that the gospel becomes the soundtrack of their stories. Paul's charge is, His focus here is on the work of preaching in the life of the church. And so just to bring you in on what's Ryan been processing through this week is, man, continuing to call my preaching to give an attention to formation rather than information. I'm a big Bible nerd, and so it's very easy for me to sit there and not move this out into our lives and hearts. Similarly, for me not to back down from the work of conviction and challenge I'm very prone to be over encouragement and lacking that because I've seen guys that do nothing but challenging and rebuking and reproving that I've got like a bad taste in my mouth and that that just because they did it wrong doesn't mean that it's not a necessary part in the church's life. And then the big one for me is patience, 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 patience in the work of preaching. I am so prone to overestimate what our church can do in a year and underestimate what the spirit can do through us in 10. Patience, patience, patience. Now, what about for the rest of you? what does this practically mean for you today? You're not planning on preaching anytime soon. Maybe some of you are and, and you know, we'll, we'll work through that as we go. But how, how can we as a community, how can we all that we're, we're not the ones that are preaching, retain sound teaching in the way of endurance? I wanna talk about two pieces of research to help us get there. Two pieces of research on arguably what you could argue are the two biggest forms of not enduring sound teaching in the American church. On one side is the far end of uh, the Christian nationalism kind of movement. And on the other side is the, what you could kind of call it, label as progressive deconstruction. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, which is those are both the same thing. Radically different implications on how they exist and move within the world. What I am arguing, though, is from someone who's looking for preaching that's coming from the scriptures, that's pointing to Jesus, that promotes godliness, those are definitely the two ones that are pulling most people, okay? So don't hear what I'm not saying here, that those are the same thing. So, Let's just think about those two. Let's hold those for a moment and bring in these two pieces of research. The first is from Pew Research. Pew Research did a large amount of study and poll and research looking at Southern white people who identify as Christian, the ones who largely make up this Christian nationalism movement. I had pictures of all the the cool stats here, but um, our projector will be back hopefully next week. So you can pray for that. Um, and so what they found within these specific groups, not just Southern white people that identify as Christian, but specifically those that um, score much higher in hyper-individualism, cynicism, uh, distrust of others, and what we would argue is idolatrous partisanship. Um, the far end example of this being, you know, storming the Capitol with crosses, right? So the question is, where, where do you get that? Why, why do people do that? You know, here we are, we're like Christians and we look at that and we go, that's, well, I'm, I'm reading this, where is that, where are you guys getting here from? Pew Research, what they found. The South, the American South, is becoming a region of unchurched or lapsed Christians who still hang on to a Christian identity but don't think going to church is necessary. They don't think the church gathering is necessary. Now on the other side, deconstruction. Deconstruction is a big word that everybody uses for everything right now. So hear me define it as a methodical, systematic dissection and rejection of Christian beliefs, often while still claiming Jesus. So the question is, where's is that coming from? Lifeway did a poll of American pastors and they found though 75% of pastors are aware of deconstruction, 70% have it seen among their regular attendants. It's not happening within church communities. Similarly, this was fascinating. The smaller the church, the lower the likelihood that the pastor has seen deconstruction in their community. Lifeway summarized, despite growing awareness among pastors, it may be easier to find people in the midst of deconstructing their faith on social media rather than within church gatherings. For a bonus, Barna Group this week, why does it seem like the deconstruction movement is largely only happening predominantly among white millennials? The primary difference, statistics found, Barna Group, the key difference is church attendance rates among millennials of color. That's the the primary difference, is the church attendance rates within these two different groups. So what unifies those very different groups that we've just looked at? Not enduring sound teaching immediately corresponds to not receiving it in the preached word in the weekly gathering of the church. And in the absence of not gathering on a weekly basis with the church, these individuals sit in front of what is now our American average, seven to 10 hours of screen time a day, which is about 49 to 70 hours a week, sitting in front of digital algorithms that we don't even have to go accumulate our little sweet tooth teachers anymore. We've got algorithms that'll just force feed it down, foie gras style, down our throats giving us then an accumulation of teachers that suit our cravings, and there we then wander into myths, whether that is the conspiracies of the far right or the progressive ideologies of the deconstruction movement. One of the great dangers in American Christianity is to not curate the teachers that you're receiving, specifically through pastors who are going to answer to God for you and are rightly dividing the word of truth to not prioritize that while you spend the rest of your week having algorithms accumulate junk food teachers for your cravings. I had a close friend in ministry who over the last few years has, how do you put this, tossed 2,000 years of unanimous church teaching under the table And when you begin to ask why, what's this coming from? Why would you leave behind 2,000 years of faithful Christian teaching on these particular subjects or doctrines? And the response that you get is a handful of white millennial YouTubers. Oh, they've got it figured out. But what's happening? An absence from the local church gathering, from being able to sit and entrust yourself to the preached word, and then you, week in and week out, receiving another shaping voice. And so here's the practice Here's the practical element for you as the church. Do you want to retain sound teaching? Do you want to retain the teaching that conforms with scripture as carried by the church that promotes godliness out and in your life and glorifies God? Prioritize the weekly gathering. Set yourself open to receive from the scriptures, not from Ryan, hear me here. The only reason I have any basis to say any of that is I'm so confident that this is the thing that I'm giving you every single week. My opinions are not, she's right here. She'll tell you how bad my opinions are. And so I'm a fully distrustful of Ryan's opinion on this kind of thing. And that's why you'll find in my teaching, I'm actually very clear when I'm stepping aside and giving Ryan's perspective on something rather than what seems to be coming from the scriptures. So this is not you know, I'm telling you to come to church because I want this to be a big thing so I can pat myself on the back and sleep better at night because we have a big church. I'm telling you as your pastor who cares about your soul, do you want to foster and retain sound teaching? What are you doing around this space and this time on a weekly basis? In the same way that you begin your budget every single month with the bigger priority things like your rent or your bills, I would just encourage you. Last week, Isaac teaching our rule of life. Build your rule of life with the Sunday gathering as being something that you prioritize, one of the first things that you schedule and plan around and for. To see what's happening in this space as crucial to my life of faithfulness to Jesus, and even more so the week ahead. Now, there's absolutely much to be said about those 49 to 70 hours of digital space that we're giving ourselves to every single week. That is a sermon for another day, probably a series for another day. Now, some of you may think this is absolutely crazy, like, you're like, no, I, I, may, I make it when I'm able to. and able to receive this, like that I would prioritize this stuff. Here's the thing. There are many people sitting next to you right now in this room that do just this. And I can argue, I can, I can say this without caveat. They are far and above the more mature Christians within, within our community. You may think it sounds, there is something in beginning my week with a posture of receiving from the scriptures and coming to the table, gathering with the saints to sing that does something to the rest of your life. And so I would encourage you to prioritize that. Now, this is not a legalist roll call where next week I'm gonna be like, you know, Johnny, like, you know, where's, J- Johnny's not here, you know. <laughs> remind me to send an email to Johnny, you know, or whatever. Johnny is here this week. Um, so it's not a legalist roll call, but here's the thing. There is probably some space of health between, you know, what you have some churches that literally do roll call, and if you're not there multiple weeks, like the pastor shows up on your front door. Like, where you been, you know? There's probably something between that and whatever this is that, that for many of us we're living within. So hear me, I'm not swinging all the way over there. I'm going, hey, maybe there's a healthy middle ground here that we should ponder and ask for ourselves. I think what Paul is saying here is exactly what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 23 through 25. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, i.e. let us retain sound teaching For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider then how to stir up one another to love and good works. How do we do that? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So practically a passage like this, that man, I, I can't tell you how many like pastor conferences I've been to, that this passage has been a call for pastors and preachers to preach the word and preach the gospel because that's what this text is doing. It's calling for Timothy to preach the word. And so the practice for the church then, you kind of have to read between the lines here that what Paul is saying though is to the is, man, receive this preached word, see the sweet tooth propensity and go, man, I wanna curate my teacher's And for the local church to be the primary place to do that. And here's the thing. If you don't find me and Lorenzo and Isaac as somebody worth curating and listening to, that is fine. We will help you find somebody worth doing. But if you're a part of the church and you trust Lorenzo and Isaac and myself to to preach the word rightly to you and know that every single week, Ryan's not just geeking out in Greek. He's praying over your names and faces and lives to cultivate and prepare this meal to set before you. I, I I don't, just to put myself in your shoes, I don't know many other things I'd want to prioritize. To know that someone spent hours mulling over the scriptures, not just going, what does this mean, but what does this mean for Andrew, for Aaron, for Kevin? What does this mean for Kyle? And to be praying through that surface and go, man, okay, when I read right here, what is that, okay, that needs to speak to. I know that this is what Duran's going through and I want to speak to that in some way. And then And then I'm not, Heartbroken. I'm trying to lean into complete patience in all of this. But I can say, man, is it so discouraging to spend time praying over some of your faces, ready to prepare something, and then to watch they're not here. And so I don't do this with shame. This is, I know it's wedding season. I know that it's summer, and I want you to celebrate. I want you to go and enjoy time with family and to travel. All I'm saying is, once again, there's probably some healthy middle ground that's worth us contemplating. How do I prioritize the Sunday gathering? Now, as we close, let's return back to verse one. Let's begin, let's end with the beginning. As we return back to verse one, we see Paul put into practice everything that he's just done as he preaches the gospel to Timothy in his charge for Timothy to preach the gospel. This is the final broadcast of Timothy here before he kind of gets in his closing words that we'll be with with Gary last week or next week. And in his final charge, it's such a powerful moment because Paul ends this moment in the letter by doing what he had spent his whole life doing, broadcasting who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's going to do. In verse one, Paul says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. First, he reminds Timothy, you and me, that Jesus Christ and the creator God share one singular presence together that Jesus is co-essential and co-equal with God the Father. That when we claim to be the people of Jesus, we're not claiming a coach or, or a life helper or a therapist. We are claiming the divine God at work within us as the person that we follow and see and who is calling us. He moves into saying not just this Jesus who is in the presence of God, but Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. He reminds us that Jesus is not just a teddy bear. He is coming to do something about the brokenness of this world. As a judge to put things to right, to bring justice to a broken world. And as encouraging as that word is, it also is a stark reminder for us to look over ourselves and to see what's going on here. Do I stand right with the judge? He reminds us of his appearing. That is his future return. Appearing is a a technical word in the Greek of when a a conquering king would return back to the city. The red carpet would be rolled out, confetti and parades and music as the conquering victor would come back into the town with the people celebrating the return of their king. Paul portrays the, the future return of Jesus when he reunites heaven and earth as that kind of portrait. He reminds us that that's what we're moving forward, his appearing. That's the basis of all of our endurance is that celebration of when Jesus returns and reunites all things and we celebrate that we are on the side of the conquering victor who through his death has brought about the perpetual revolution of his love. And then he also calls on Timothy and us to remember his kingdom his present rule and reign in this world at work and being represented within his people. Paul sets the gospel. He sets Jesus, who he is and what he's done before Timothy and us. Because endurance is not a matter of your willpower, but receiving Jesus for who he is and letting him become the gasoline in the engine of your life, the soundtrack to your life. Jesus is the source and essence then of all of our life and all sound teaching ultimately flows to and from him. All healthy teaching is about you receiving Jesus, you being conformed into the likeness of his image and you glorifying Jesus. And so we hold fast to him in all of this. Preachers get up every single week and preach him because he is the one that you need to hold and receive and experience most deeply for the sake of the life that you want to live. It's so profound to me how much the Christian language is used, once again, to talk about those deconstruction movements on one side and the Christian nationalism of the other, of how little Jesus there actually is in the conversation and how individualistic both sides are. Paul sets the gospel before us, and he sets Jesus before him so that we might hold fast to Jesus so that we may one day, just like Paul, in our final final days, we may remember our endurance because of him and repeat the gospel as our death draws near. Just like Paul did last week, Philippians, Philippians, 2 Timothy 4, (laughs) what we read last week, verse seven. Paul, here he is, final broadcast. He knows martyrdom is around the corner and what does he say? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have retained sound teaching. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Crown, you see the kingdom language from the gospel? Which the Lord, the righteous judge, just talked about this a minute ago, will award to me on the day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved and longed for his appearing, for his kingdom return. Have you loved his appearing? that future tense moment that you're waiting for when all will be put right within this world and that kingdom of God is brought fully back into the kingdom of this world and they are reunited once again. Is that what you've loved? Is that what you long for? Is that what you want most? And to see it experienced in parts and starts right here, right now in your life today, is that what you love? That is the basis for the endurance, a longing look at the kingdom that's to come. Now, for some of us today, The preaching of this word has brought, maybe for some of you, conviction, for others of you, a challenge, and for others of you, encouragement. My hope is to reunite all three of those for each of you today. My hope today is that for some of all of us, that this word would be a word of conviction, prompting you to look over those tired areas of your life where you continue to live by the the whims of your sweet tooth and to find the invitation to the healthy life that you're looking for. The spiritual vitality is found by retaining the sound teaching as given by the scriptures. For some of you, I want to give a chance, for all of you, a challenge to your life to audit your digital and worship habits to ask yourself, what are those teachers that I'm receiving? What are the words that are guiding my life? How are they shaping my perception of what this life is all about? And does it come from the scriptures? Is it held by the church? Does it promote godliness? And does it lead to God being glorified? And then for all of us, I wanna encourage you in your walk. I love that there's this turn in Paul referring to Jesus as judge that most of us, we hear that and it gets terrifying. But to remind you that what it means that Jesus is judge is that for those of us who have come to Jesus to receive him through the work of his cross, that 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 coming one day verdict has already been spoken over you. The judge has already banged the gavel. He has already declared over those of us who come to Jesus to receive him as King and Lord, as as righteous, as innocent, as beloved. And so our lives are not lived with some terror of judgment hanging over us, but life in the freeness of a verdict that's already been made. And if that's not worth enduring in, if that's not worth retaining and holding on to at the core of ourselves, I don't know what else to offer you. And so I want to encourage you as the forgiven and beloved members of our King Jesus to ponder and question what it means for you to take one more degree of glory, one more step this week in belonging further to the perpetual revolution called the kingdom of God and to keep going in it. That might, might be your first step today. It might be your millionth, but whatever it is, what is one more step? What is this week? What is your one more step of further moving into the kingdom that he's called you to be? And please don't underestimate the impact that a weekly word can have over a decade or six. Let's pray.